to Women's Waves, a podcast by Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. My name is Florence B. Lepage. Thank you for listening. Today's episode is about pornography. Pornography promotes men's entitlement to women's bodies. Pornography is based on and profits of the degradation of women for male pleasure. To end male violence against women, we must abolish the pornography industry. This is part one of our two-part series, Pornography Harms Women. You will hear an interview with Megan Donovan from Talita, a Sweden-based organization who supports women exiting the porn industry. But first, I had a chat with another collective member of Vancouver Rape Relief, Sofia Hladik. I am here with Sophia, collective member at Vancouver Rape Relief, to talk more about our experience of pornography on the front lines. Hi, Sophia. Hi, Flo. So, Sophia, what do we know from women who called our line and are harmed by pornography? So, women call our crisis line to tell us about various experience of male violence, including rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment, wife assault, and their experience in prostitution, including also how they have been affected by pornography. A lot of women tell us about how former partners uh, are using revenge porn, as we are now calling it, um, to blackmail or threaten them into resuming a relationship with them, into having sex with them again, or just in order to continue to exert um, control and humiliate them. Uh, you know, women in our transition house also tell us that their abusive husbands have profited off pornographic videos of them for years and continue to do so. And women tell us that um, their rape as a child was filmed and now continues to reappear on pornographic websites, including Pornhub. Uh, no matter how many times uh, it's been reported, or that's what they were telling us uh, up until recently. And we assist women and support them in the process of requesting that these images and videos are removed. Um, so we're very involved in actually uh, attempting to remove pornographic images that were taken without women's consent from the internet. Uh, we also work with women who tell us that their rapists filmed their attacks and Uh, police have told them that they're not able to access the video off his phone. And women live in fear that the video is going to be posted online and uh, they ultimately have no control over that. Um, so we do, we do see that also as a failure of the police to take revenge porn or <clears throat> filmed rape seriously and are completely unequipped from protecting women from pornography being distributed of them online. Um, I think it's also important always to stress that 
women are not only impacted directly by pornography or revenge pornography being posted of them online, all women are impacted by the existence of pornography uh, because women tell us that their boyfriends or lovers have attempted to recreate pornographic scenes on their bodies by forcing anal rape, strangulation. A woman told me once that um, he said to her that what he did to her was even better than watching pornography. So men essentially um, are influenced by their consumption of pornography and reenact the harm on women's bodies. So not only are the women who are in pornography harmed by the creation of pornography, um, but also uh, the partners of the men who watch pornography. So how are women impacted by revenge porn, the non-consensual distribution of intimate images? Revenge porn, as we call it, uh, has a massive impact on women's lives because it haunts them essentially forever. Um, you know, it, it gives them an immense amount of anxiety, affects their ability to work, their friendships, their family life. Um, the challenge in the process of taking revenge porn down is that there's many, many pornographic sites in addition to Pornhub. Um, there's often not even protocols on how to request images and videos being taken down. Um, they often, you know, he can post them again and again and again. Uh, police will say that it's impossible to prove that it's actually him who's posting it because now the video has been posted so many times that it could be anyone re-uploading it. But we know it's not true because he's, you know, tagging you know, her name and where she lives in the video so that it's directly associated with her. And she knows that there's only one person, her abusive ex, that would be interested, for example, in uh, pursuing her, yet police uh, claim that it's just impossible to prove. So really they are protecting uh, the abusive men that are going after the women in that way. And uh, there's also the additional challenge of having to delist uh, images and videos from Google. So it's just a massive process and you have to constantly be on top of it and, um, you know, engage in, with these websites that are ultimately dismissive. So women do need a lot of support in doing that and um, a better process needs to be created in order to take down revenge porn. Who profits from pornography? Ultimately, it's the pornographers or the distributors. So companies like MindGeek that own Pornhub make $460 million a year. They are not involved, uh, or as far as I know, in the creation or production of any pornography. All they do is distribute pornography, and they have massive profits. So the men who own these companies, and it is largely men, profit um, immensely off the exploitation, degradation, and humili humiliation of women in pornography, you know, in comparison, the women that are in pornography only make a fraction of the kind of profits that the men who own these companies do. So ultimately, the women who are used in pornography or exploited in pornography profit minimally in comparison to the massive profits that these companies and pornographers make. And what role does MindGeek, the company who owns Pornhub, plays in the porn industry? Uh, MindGeek the company that is based in Montreal owns the biggest company that hosts porn online, Pornhub. And until recently, they basically hosted any type of content, including um, 
rape videos or child pornography, and they did so with impunity. Um, and what are Vancouver Rape Relief's recommendations regarding MindGeek specifically? In December of 2020, uh, the New York Times published a piece on uh, MindGeek through Pornhub hosting uh, rape videos as well as child pornography online. And in response to that, the Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy, and Ethics in the House of Commons uh, started an investigation into MindGeek since it's based in Montreal, and we made a submission to this committee. And in our submission, we recommended that the owners of MindGeek actually be held criminally responsible for knowingly hosting rape videos and revenge porn, and that MindGeek immediately release information about the individuals uploading this content, such as their IP addresses to the police so they can be held responsible under Canadian criminal law or the laws of the countries in which these individuals reside. So um, in response to that investigation, they did remove all unverified content. But up until now, as far as we know, no one in the company has actually been held responsible at all for um, essentially being the reason why women and children um, are being humiliated in this way. What are Vancouver Rape Relief's recommendations uh, in general regarding the non-consensual distribution of intimate images? So in order to actually deter men from terrorizing women in this way, police and prosecutors actually have to prioritize investigating and charging and prosecuting the men who are posting the revenge porn online and this does actually require requesting warrants um, and investigating who uploaded the pictures in every report made to police. Um, companies hosting pornographic content such as rape videos and revenge pornography actually have to release information about the individuals uploading this content, such as their IP addresses. Uh, owners and executives, like we said before, have to be held criminally responsible for what they're doing. And in Canada, that is our responsibility to hold MindGeek accountable. And women actually deserve an efficient, streamlined platform to facilitate the takedown of revenge pornography and to delist images and videos from Google searches because <clears throat> the wide circulation of images and videos has to be prevented. So that means that, you know, the process has to actually be a lot more efficient and immediate. And... Uh, you know, the methods of doing that need to be a lot more straightforward. So um, we also made a submission uh, in BC, in British Columbia, uh, because the there has been a consultation by the local government on uh, legislation to address the non-consensual distribution of intimate images, um, which is an, another term basically for revenge porn. And those are the recommendations that we made there. And so our, let's introduce our guest. So you interviewed Megan Donovan from Talita. Can you tell us about that interview before we listen to it? Yes. So Megan Donovan um, works with Talita, an organization that works with women who are exiting prostitution. And they have done some research on the pornography industry in Sweden 
and how it impacts women and also work with women who are exiting pornography. So we have a really interesting conversation about what that work is like and how it compares to the situation in Canada. Yeah, my name is Megan Donovan and I'm the research director at Talita. It's a Swedish organization offering both kind of emergency assistance, but also long-term support to women who've been exploited in prostitution, pornography, and human trafficking for sexual exploitation. Okay, so yeah, about Talita, how did it start and um, what do you offer specifically concretely to women? Absolutely. So back in the early 2000s, um, the two founders, Anna and Josephine, they were working um, among women in prostitution, doing outreach, and they saw that while there were services for women with drug addictions, there were no services for women who didn't have drug addictions and who wanted to leave exit prostitution. And so through the many, many years of conversations they've had with the women, the women have have really taught them what they need to be able to exit successfully from prostitution. So we offer a trauma-informed um, uh, long-term program. Um, we realized that the kind of common red thread throughout all the women's stories was earlier forms of violence. And so trauma, we see that as the consequence of violence. Um, and so what we find is absolutely crucial is for the program to be long-term. So the women um, can stay in our safe house for first a year. Uh, and there she receives regular uh, therapy, uh, psychoeducation. So that's more of a group therapy setting. Um, and then also case management. And we're always tweaking and tailoring our program to suit her background and her needs. So because obviously the women are all coming from very different experiences and different mm -hmm. backgrounds. Um, a lot of the women are coming from areas like, um, for instance, Nigeria, that's really common in Western Europe, uh, Romania. But then of course, we also receive women from Sweden and uh, other areas of, of the world. But um, as I said, the kind of our program is can be tailored to each woman's needs. Um, and then of course, a hugely important aspect is to offer them integration, um, reintegration back into society. So that can look, you know, that'll look different from case to case. And for some that would be learning Swedish, um, doing maybe an internship and then getting hopefully work. Uh, for others, it might be going to, you know, um, completing their high school credits and then going to university. Um, so during that case management phase, the woman is kind of communicating what her needs are, what her goals are, and then together with her, we, we create a plan and work through all of those goals. Um, and then after that year, she transitions to our transition home where she continues to receive support. But as we've seen, and as we know, gradually she wants more and more independence. And as she, of course, becomes more integrated in society, um, hopefully gets work experience, comes into the labor market, uh, labor force, then as I said, um, it becomes kind of, she needs to lead a less and less and she becomes more and more independent. So, but of course we want to always um, make sure that she, um, the, the goal is that she will be back on her feet. She will have, be able to support herself financially and super importantly, she'll understand her, her worth and her value uh, because that is often absolutely um, missing when we first meet them, when they come to our safe house. 
So what does the pornography industry in Sweden and in Europe look like? So who are the pornographers who profit and who are the women who are exploited? And like, where do these women come from? You already touched on Nigeria and Romania. Yeah, I can start by saying that prior to doing this study we did in 2018 to 2019, where we investigated the pornography industry in Sweden, before that, we had obviously seen a very clear link between prostitution and pornography. So some of the women we met had been trafficked into pornography. Others had been filmed while in prostitution. That film, that material was used for pornography. Um, and so we saw this very, very clear overlap and link. And still we felt that, okay, well, we know pornography production is taking place elsewhere. We really don't know much about what's happening in our own context in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I think, uh, maybe what many people feel around the world. I mean, we have maybe some data and some um, information from the US, but I think many people could say that they don't really know what's happening in their own, um, their own context. So we felt like that was super important, especially when it comes to putting it on the political agenda, we need to know what's happening in our own communities. So during this, um, this study then, so I, did, I conducted first a kind of qualitative mapping of what are the sites, who are the producers, how are the women recruited, um, how are the, you know, are the pornography photographs and films um, distributed, et cetera. And then I followed that up with um, qualitative in-depth in interviews with nine different women with experiences in the pornography industry in Sweden. And so what I discovered was that while there are some um, pornographers that I think we would maybe think of as kind of more traditional, what we think of as pornographers. So that would have, you know, studios that would rent maybe a room or apartment, um, bring in a camera crew, et cetera. Um, but the majority of pornography production nowadays is basically on line where women themselves are recruited and then are, are um, um, they upload material themselves. Mm -hmm. So now there's websites, I think maybe some of you have heard of website OnlyFans. I'll get, I'll touch on that later on. But for now, what mm -hmm. we looked at were certain websites in Sweden. And so what was so interesting uh, and so I would say alarming is just the, the language used by these pornographers. So when you first come into these sites, you would initially re really have no idea that this is actually about pornography because they're calling it things like glamor modeling, they're calling it blogging. And so it's only when you start to kind of, you know, scratch them, like dig deeper is when you actually realize that, hold on, this is, this is a pornography industry today. Mm -hmm. And so these pornographers are the, the men profiting off of uh, women's you know, pornographic materials, they are extremely, you know, strategic and also manipulative. So they're contacting um, young women, even girls under the age of 18, they're contacting them on social media, Instagram, Facebook, hey, you're so beautiful, you can earn really easy money um, mm -hmm. quickly. And so, and the, the, the message for these, um, the message to these women is that hey, why not get paid for the images you're anyway going to post on Instagram? Mm -hmm. Why not? Uh, why settle on likes when you can get paid? Mm -hmm. is the and that's super, that is, as I said, complete, a very, very insidious recruitment method because 
it's not true. In the end, women will be pushed and pushed and pushed um, to kind of go over their boundaries and um, partake in more and more hardcore, um, you know, violent sexualized acts over time. But also I think it really, um, it really reflects the influencer culture and the likes culture that many, I think all young women um, kind of are marinated in today where I think they, they're really fed with this, this message that their value, their worth is determined by how many followers and how many likes they have. Mm -hmm. So by kind of that messaging saying that why not, why not get paid? Uh, mm-hmm. when you're anyway going to post these pictures it it starts to we start to understand why it's so easy for young women and girls to take that next step to mm-hmm. selling images so that's what the women um, that I interviewed also confirmed that the majority of the women are very young 18 19 20 but some even underage as well mm-hmm. um, the women talked about how both in their own experiences but also um, in conversations with other women, many are coming from different types of financial insecurity. They, you know, they ended up in some kind of some kind of crisis, and they needed they needed money quickly. So for one woman, mm-hmm. um, she was at the age of twenty, um, had a boyfriend that was extremely violent in all ways, uh, physically, psychologically, sexually, mm-hmm. and he put her in a lot of debt as well. And so for her to get out of that situation. Um, she thought this was her, you know, this was her way out. Mm-hmm. Um, other women talked about being raped either as children or by intimate partners when they were young. Mm-hmm. And again, what what's early sexualized violence does is it it grooms these women into continued violence, which mm-hmm. they will be subject to in pornography. So we know in the prostitution field that there's just a very, very clear link between earlier sexual abuse and mm-hmm. interest into prostitution. And it's the same we see in pornography. Um, and because of this earlier sexualized violence um, combined with then uh, financial insecurity, many of them struggled with different forms of uh, mental health problems, depression, anxiety, some even talked about PTSD, um, suicidal ideation, etc. And especially then, we know that uh, young women, there's, of course, increased vulnerabilities there. She hasn't maybe had any um, work experience, no education. And given their vulnerability, it becomes very, very hard to, um, to keep kind of or maintain boundaries that she's already established. Um, and over time, it becomes harder and harder to do that. And most often the women don't necessarily understand the implications of posting, you know, a sexualized image online. I think many don't understand that, you know, these images are probably going to be online forever. Um, And that becomes an extra harm uh, that I can discuss a little bit later, but hopefully that's beginning Mm -hmm. to answer some of the questions. Yeah, it sounds like in your experience, similar factors that push women into prostitution also push women into pornography like uh, financial insecurity or uh, a boyfriend, poor mental health, and previous experiences of violence, of course, which is one of the biggest factors always, as well as young age. I think those are all really clearly linked to entry into prostitution as well. So 
how does being in pornography impact women in comparison to prostitution? Yeah, great question. So for one, I think there are fewer women who are in pornography right now and who actually realize that they are victims of a crime. Um, mm -hmm. And so therefore it's, there's also less awareness and fewer kind of explicit um, services directed towards them. Thankfully that's changing now. And now that we've seen the kind of overlap between prostitution and pornography here, and hopefully that will continue, um, that mm -hmm. understanding will continue to spread. But for now, I think a lot of them don't even see that there's a way out. And that's, mm -hmm. um, that is something that needs to be changed. Um, but for those who we have met, mm -hmm. uh, who have either exited or in the, are in the process of exiting, um, I mean, the needs are, are the same. They mm -hmm. need, um, for instance, they talk about needing trauma therapy, um, someone to talk to, um, even like having a place to kind of live where it takes them out of that context they were kind of immersed in, um, but also job opportunity, other job employment opportunities, further education that was really emphasized. And that's what we've seen among the survivors we've talked to. Um, and, but what makes pornography so, so much more difficult to exit? We know that prostitution, exiting prostitution is probably one of the hardest journeys someone can go through, but with pornography, you not only have the same, um, the same, often the same physical, um, physical um, harms. It can even be worse. But what is more is that in pornography, everything is documented. There's mm -hmm. evidence of your humiliation, and that humiliation is spread to who knows where. So for the rest of your life, you're going to have to live with the fact that you know this man, random person I see on the street, perhaps has seen me being raped by four men. Not only that, he's probably jerked off to it. So it makes exiting pornography so much more difficult. The woman I spoke to in this, during this study and other survivors I've talked to uh, and worked with have said how many don't even see it as an op option to exit because these images are online mm -hmm. and they have no way to control them and remove them. Mm -hmm. um, so we see that and actually within the research too, uh, Melissa Farley, a researcher I'm working with right now, she has done these, you know, huge studies among women in various types of prostitution. And what she found was that the women whose prostitution was filmed for pornography, she found that their PTSD symptom levels were significantly higher. And so mm -hmm. she argues, and this is confirmed by, you know, what we see. Uh, again and again, is that pornography is a potentially e potentially even greater form of damage compared to other forms of prostitution. And mm -hmm. I think I think the general public often wants to separate the two. Like prostitution mm -hmm. is one thing, and of course the women are you know subject to violence and it's horrible, blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. Pornography, that's you know they think of porn stars, etc. And oh, but these women, that you know the happy hooker, uh, that's mm -hmm. the kind of image they have, but in our experiences and among survivors' experiences, that image is completely incorrect. What's really interesting here too, of course, is that you're in the context of um, a country that has the Nordic model where the buying of sex is criminalized. Um, and obviously pornographers are still operating. So can you kind of explain um, 
what the laws in Sweden currently are around prostitution and pornography? Absolutely. So uh, when it comes to prostitution, Sweden was the first country to criminalize the buying of sex as well as pimping um, while making it legal to sell sex. So that uh, is a way to protect the women who are already in an extremely marginalized situation uh, while putting the onus of, uh, on the man who has social, financial, all types of power over this woman. Um, mm -hmm. So Sweden understood that there's a, there's a power struggle here. Uh, this mm -hmm. is a very gendered phenomenon. It's men buying access to women's body. And given our understanding of um, our patriarchal society, we know that women from day one have fewer opportunities in life. And all of these inequalities push women and render them um, um, render them subject to or at risk for ending up in prostitution. So that is the status of our prostitution laws here. And what's happened is that uh, the demand has significantly reduced. Um, the government has really prioritized the issue of prostitution um, and the police have um, been really well retrained. And so they work very actively with this issue. Um, However, I think what's happened is that pimps and traffickers, knowing that they are not going to be as profitable in Sweden with, you know, their, your kind of classic form of prostitution, they're always finding ways to try and minimize, uh, minimize their risks and maximize their profits. So they're always a step ahead in finding new forms of exploitation and mm -hmm. trying to repackage it to disguise it and so that they mm -hmm. will again so we see new forms of prostitution like sugar dating, so-called sugar daddy dating. Mm -hmm. um, thankfully, the police have begun to kind of work um, actively against that issue. Um, and now pornography. I mean, the thing was, the thing is that especially during COVID, we've seen the parallel like never before. And women who were in other forms of prostitution, they ended up now going online because that's mm -hmm. where the demand is and women are sent to where the demand is. Um, and so we see again, like that, again, we can't separate these forms of exploitation. They're all the same. And I think when it, so when it comes to pornography, it's, it's been legal here. So producing it, distributing, et cetera, everything's legal about it. And yet, uh, for instance, researcher Max Waltman argues that according to our legislation, pornography producers and distributors should be liable when it comes to our pimping and trafficking mm -hmm. laws. So right mm -hmm. now they should, we should be applying those laws uh, onto these porn pimps. Same thing goes also then for now, for instance, with these new websites like, like OnlyFans where men are buying images of sexualized acts. So they're buying sexualized acts just online. We should be able to use our Sex Purchase Act online. I mean, we, I think we make that mistake time and time again, where we have our laws, but we're not keeping up with the times. We're not able mm -hmm. to, we haven't dared to apply those laws onto, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the new arena, internet, but still, but yet we are li living on the internet. So it seems so illogical to not, to separate, mm -hmm. you know, our online and offline lives because they mm -hmm. are completely interlinked. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what we're pushing for. We really think that um, this is an area that, you know, both in Sweden and Canada, where we have 
our Nordic model and prostitution mm -hmm. laws, we have a huge opportunity to actually apply those laws or tweak mm -hmm. them in order to apply them to different uh, new forms of exploitation. Yeah, I think um, uh, a quote that stood out to us from an interview that you did is that you summarized that pornography is the ultimate backlash to our abolitionist efforts. And it's true that like kind of what you're saying with even though there's been great strides on abolition, pornography continues to increase as an industry and more and more women are recruited into it, especially during COVID when um, women have become so financially vulnerable. In terms of um, like, what are your recommendations about laws needing be, to be changed? Or do you think that the current prostitution laws need to be interpreted as also applying to pornographers? And um, do you have any sort of recommendations in this current situation that you're in? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's many different things that could be done and should be done. Um, so for one, as I mentioned, that Max Waltman kind of argues and has done a, you know, his PhD dissertation on this issue, 500 pages of a brilliant work, um, has argued that our current laws need to be applied to pornography. I think what, what we've required, though, if that were the case, is a, um, a woman that would actually be willing to go through that um, mm -hmm. kind of judicial process. And that, um, that can be extremely well, we know that that is extremely burdensome. It's very, it can be like re-traumatizing. Mm -hmm. um, and there's certainly no guarantee that she's going to get any form of justice, mm -hmm. uh, let alone, you know, damage awards. So to kind of put that onus on a survivor, I mean, I think that's a way, if a woman is willing to do that with support mm -hmm. from an organization like Toledo, that would be incredible. But we still, we can't just wait for, a woman to be ready for that and so at the same time what we are pushing for here in Sweden is for a um, a state commission to look closer at the harms of pornography kind of a holistic uh, commission looking at both the harms of consumption and production so we're really pushing for that and that was the background there were two different commissions actually but that was the background to our current prostitution laws and how we see it and what's Sweden has realized is that the law in itself is absolutely crucial and can have an enormously normative effect uh, as it has in Sweden, um, but it cannot be without support for women. They have mm -hmm. to be able to exit. One thing that we've done had, uh, within Toledo actually is we focused um, on prevention through a kind of initiative we call reality check, and we've developed um, curriculum, education curriculum for mm -hmm. school, other, um, other contexts where adults meet children. And it's focusing on the kind of harms of pornography um, because we know that like, if we don't prevent boys, mainly boys and men from consuming pornography, I will always be there, right? That's the demand. Mm -hmm. So we need to tackle the demand just as we try and do uh, in the realm of prostitution. We're just, so appreciative of all the work that you're doing um, with women and responding to their needs, as well as advocating for real political change and actual alternatives for women in the sex industry. And mm -hmm. obviously reaching out to children and families about how to uh, prevent consumption of pornography as well as um, resist the glamorization of the pornography industry. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for talking to us today.
Thanks, Sophia. It's been an honor. And this is it for Women's Waves. Thanks for listening. Women's Waves is produced in Vancouver, Canada. What you're hearing is our theme song. It's called Sisterhood, and it's created by Music Liberatory. Music Liberatory.